We're continuing in this series on the book of Galatians that we started last week. Felt like the Lord wanted to, us to walk through the whole book uh, in three weeks. And so that's an ambitious task. We're going to be looking at uh, chapters three and four today. And I'm really excited about that. And before we dive into that, I want to read those chapters. I want to, uh, man, I can't wait to, to share what God's put on my heart after, after dwelling in these scriptures uh, over the last few weeks. But I want to do a little quick review if you, if you missed it last week. Um, let, let, me, let me set it up with this. I was on Facebook this week, and this guy, it's like a friend of a friend, good old Baptist guy, he shared this post, and he said, if Paul could see the church in America today, we'd be getting a letter. And uh, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, but I have to wonder if the letter we might get has already been written, and it's called Galatians, because we desperately need it. And so Paul wrote this letter to a group of churches in Galatia that he started. We talked about this last week. And he was really concerned about them because they started off with the true gospel, the full gospel of who, uh, of who Jesus is. They had authentic faith. Things were going well. But after he left, some false teachers came in. Some Pharisee Christians came in and began pulling the people away from the true gospel. And it's important to note, these were not non-Christian people. These were teachers and leaders who claimed Jesus. And they said, yeah, Jesus is great, but you have to do all this stuff too. And it, they started to what Paul called uh, pervert the gospel. And we talked about this last week. Uh, the word pervert means to alter from its original course, meaning, or state to a distortion or corruption of what was first intended. And this is the key verses that we looked at last week, Galatians 1, 6, and 7. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one, you're so quickly deserting the one true Jesus, real Jesus. You're deserting him who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's not even good news, Paul says. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so, again, when you look at who these people were, these were leaders and teachers who, who said, we believe in Jesus. We're Christians. But you just have to do all this other stuff to be right with God. And Paul says in chapter 5, by the time you get there, he goes, if you believe that, and if you get, your, get circumcised, if you buy into all that, Christ, the one true Jesus, will be of no value to you. So let me ask you, church, is it possible in our day and age to say you believe in Jesus but it's not even the real true Jesus. It's a perverted Jesus. It's, it's a Jesus that's been dis distorted. It's a, a gospel, a good news of Jesus that's been distorted to where it's not even good news at all. Is that possible? Amen. So is it possible for people to come to church and say, I believe in Jesus, to say a prayer and, and not go to heaven? Is that possible? That's possible. That's possible. And so how important is it that we make sure that we're believing in the one true Jesus, in the one true gospel? Because fake Jesuses can't save you. Amen. Only the one true Jesus. And God is one. He doesn't change. And he doesn't change his mind. And the spirit is one with Jesus. And Jesus is one with the Father. And so it's one gospel. There's one true gospel. And we need to make sure that we're not falling into a perversion. And so, and so I want to review what we talked about last week. Because it's so important. We talked about this illustration. Where this is the true gospel. This is Jesus. You know, the cross of Jesus Christ. It says Jesus in John 1 is full of grace and truth. It's not one or the other. If you start picking one or the other to the exclusion of one or the other, that's where you get a perverted gospel that can't save you. And so we looked at this last week. 
people on this side, when you start to let go of grace, you have a gospel that's perverted that turns into legalism or traditionalism. The biblical example of this are the Pharisees. It's high on truth, low on grace. And because they're letting go of grace, they start adding rules or traditions to be right with God. This pollutes the gospel. And so for them in their day and age, it was, it was oh no, you can believe in Jesus, that's great. I'm so glad he died on the cross for us. But hey, that's not enough. You have to get circumcised. By the way, you still have to observe the Sabbath. If you work on the Sabbath, you'll go to hell. That's what they were preaching. So you have to do no regular work. You have to observe the Sabbath. And that's an offense to the grace of God. Why? Because that's making a righteous requirement something, a good work that you have to do. It's saying the blood of Jesus isn't good enough. So, hey, blood of Jesus, that's great. Uh, I guess we need that. But, hey, you also have to do all these things. And God said, no, that's the law. We're not under that anymore. And so what's it look like in our day? There are some Christian denominations that still talk about that. Like, ooh, if we don't worship on Saturday, then we're not going to be right with God because Saturday's the true Sabbath and blah, 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 right? It gets crazy. And so, but there's also, in our day, people, churches make a big deal about the way you dress, right? If you, if you wear jeans and a t-shirt, you know, you're not right with God. You know, false teachers wearing skinny jeans. Can you believe those guys? I don't wear skinny jeans. I have skinny legs. So stop judging me. I wear jeans that fit. Praise the Lord. All right. And so, <laughs> style of music, right? If you got drums in your church, oh, it's devil music. That's worldly stuff. It's worldly. <laughs> I saw a meme on Facebook, and it was somebody criticizing, not our church, but just the way we do church, uh, modern churches. And it was like a modern stage with modern lights, drum sets, guitars. And then they had a picture of like a, a modern like concert, and it was the same exact thing. And they're like, and it like had a verse about the world. Like, if you love the world, you're like going to hell and stuff. And I thought, oh, that's funny. If you put their preacher up, he would be wearing a three-piece suit. Now show the guy with the TED Talk who's a businessman in a three-piece suit. It doesn't work. That's not an apples to apples comparison. Anyways, I'm not going to get into that. So I just did. But translation of the Bible, if you don't read KJV, you're not right with God because it's not the true word of God, right? Day of the week. I talked about that. Celebrating right holidays. Well, you know, Christmas and Easter, they got pagan stuff in them and we shouldn't celebrate Christmas and Easter and, and really we should be celebrating Passover. And, and then some Christians take that to an extreme to where if you don't celebrate the Jewish feast, you're not right with God. Well, that's going back to the law. So what are the scriptures that pull us back? Ephesians 2, right? It is by grace you are saved through faith, not by works, none of these works, so that no one can boast. Colossians 2, therefore, because he disarmed powers and authorities on the cross, do not let yourselves, don't let anyone judge you in regard to a new moon or a Sabbath or a religious festival. The Apostle Paul, who used to be zealous about Sabbath, is like, if, if you work on the Sabbath and you choose to, to, to worship on a Sunday instead of Saturday, don't let the legalists judge you for that. Don't let them, he says. Why? Because you start going down this road if you let them. And so Galatians 4, 10, and 11, where he says, I, I'm, I'm fearing, we're going to read that today, so I'll skip it. I'm fearing that I'm, I'm wasting my efforts on you because you're starting to go down this track. Galatians 5, it's for freedom Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery anymore. And so these scriptures pull us back into the grace of Jesus. There's nothing we can do to, to earn our salvation or to make ourselves right with God. It's only by receiving, confessing, yes, I am a sinner and I need you, Jesus, to save me. That's the only way you get right with God, right? So what about on this side? If you let go of truth, 
And oh my goodness, we have, these are, these two extremes are, are two of the biggest perversions in America, and we've got both of them, right? But now you're, you're getting in America, especially a whole lot of progressive Christians, uh, liberalism, liberal Christianity, uh, biblical example of this, by the way, they were dealing with this in the first century, is the Corinthian church, where he says, you have a form of sexual immorality among you that even the pagan, the unbeliever people do not commit because they know it's wrong. Wow. And, and they were getting drunk on the communion wine at church. And Paul's like, you can't do that. Why? Because they're, they're high on grace. They're so high on grace, they let go of truth. They let go of the moral nature of God. We're not under moral law, but the spirit of God empowers us to have the moral nature of Jesus. So when you become a Christian, you don't lie, steal, cheat, or kill, or commit sexual immorality. And, and go read go to a verse study in the New Testament post-resurrection of what sins the New Testament calls out. And I'm telling you, sexual morality is, is one of the top ones. Flee from it. Have nothing to do with it. And so it's high on grace, low on truth, re- removes morality consequences. If you keep going far enough down this road, you start to believe things like, well, you know, Christianity is not the only way to God. Some other face really could lead to God. And as I said last week, tragically in America, a majority of Christians, 52% of Christians now believe in America that at least some other face could lead to heaven. Really? Then why did Jesus die on a cross? That is offensive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going way too far that way if you start to say stuff like that. What else? You start to say, well, you know, sexual immorality is really okay with God. Go read the Bible. New Testament Christianity. I'm not quoting from Leviticus where it says homosexuality is an abomination. No, no, no. I'm not quoting that. I'm quoting New Covenant Christianity. Jesus didn't talk about it. Yes, he did. He said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. And he said, sexual immorality, pornea, it's the Greek word that includes all forms of sexual immorality. He absolutely did address it. No eternal judgment. You know, oh, you know, and you know, we're all, we're not going to be judged. You know, God loves people and we'll all be saved. Everybody's really going to go to heaven. So what are the scriptures? What do the scriptures say that pull us back to the truth? And these are the scriptures that we talked about last week. 1 Corinthians 6. This is where Paul's writing to that very liberal church that, that had a lot, was high on grace, low on truth. And he says, do not be deceived. Sexually immoral people, immoral people will not go to heaven. Drunkards will not go to heaven. People who continue in drunkenness will not go to heaven. That's what he said. Greedy people who continue in that. Liars will not go to heaven. You can, you can go to church. You can say a prayer. You can say you got saved. But if you continue in sin, don't be deceived, he said. You won't go to heaven. Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 29, which many believe, you know, it's debated whether Paul or Apollos wrote it. I think Paul did based on how it's written. But he says, if you deliberately keep on sinning after you've received the truth, there's no sacrifice for sins left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire. He says, you've insulted the spirit of grace. You've treated as an unholy thing the cross of Christ. You've treated the cross of Christ as as a common thing, a cheap thing. Well, God will forgive us. And so the moment you start using grace as a license to sin is the exact moment you're in danger of God's judgment if you go too far this way, right? Hebrews, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter six. Paul says, Paul was accused by these people over here of being too gracious, of, well, people that listen to you, they think they can just sin all the time. And Paul goes, no, 
Shall we sin that grace may increase? No, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Hebrews 9, what about eternal judgment? It is appointed for a man to die once and face the judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, since we know what it is to fear God, it goes on to say, basically, let's be his ambassadors. You know, because we're not going to hell now and we're so thankful and since we know what it is to fear God, we should really lay down our lives and do everything possible to help other people not go to hell. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 is all about. What about Matthew verse 7, where Jesus, what about eternal judgment? Jesus said, not everyone. Is everybody gonna be saved? The one true Jesus says, no. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not even everyone who said the prayer is going to heaven. Why is that? Most likely because they they treat it as an unholy thing, the cross, and they went right back to their sinful lifestyle. Or maybe they weren't trusting in the cross in the first place. Maybe they kept trusting in their own religious works and thought in their own self-righteousness they were such a good person. I don't know. But Jesus said not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to go to heaven. What about those who've never even heard of the Lord? How can they believe unless someone preaches to them, as Paul said in Romans 10? And so Matthew 25, he says, I'm going to... This is, and he, this is not even a parable. He goes, uh, when the angels come at the end of the age, they're going to get everybody, and they're going to sort, sort them and separate, separate them out. You know, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats, this is Matthew 25, 31 through 41. And then I'm going to say to the ones on my left, the goats, but he's not talking about goats. It's a metaphor. He's talking about real people. He will say, away from me, I never knew you into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The one true Jesus said that. And so these scriptures pull us back to the center, the true gospel. Saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast, but man, we need to honor Jesus with the way that we live our lives. And if we get too far one way or the other, it's a perversion. It's a perversion. And so we need to examine ourselves, as scripture says, make sure that we're not trusting in our own righteous works, make sure that we're not letting go of truth and morality and the holiness and purity that God calls us to, but to stay humbly walking before God. Amen? And so there's a third perversion I said last week I want to talk about today because Paul talks about it in Galatians 3 and 4. And I do believe it's a perversion of the true gospel as we're going to see as, as we check the scriptures out today. And that is an absence, denial of or even speaking against the ministry and gifts of the Holy Spirit. The church in Galatia in Paul's day was in danger of going back to circumcision of the flesh to be right with God. And the church in America in our day is in danger of circumcising the Holy Spirit from the body of Christ. And that is a very dangerous thing. That is a very dangerous thing. And if we see that the church in our day has a form of godliness, but no power, then perhaps that's why. And so I want to dive into Galatians 3 and 4, and Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit in these next few chapters, really the rest of the book. And Paul drops some bombs in the early part of Galatians chapter 3. And so I want to read both chapters, chapters 3 and 4 walk through them, and then we're going to come back to the bombs that he drops in the beginning of chapter 3, um, because these are some theological bombs that we need to, to detonate in our day and age 
to level false religion, to level the spirit of religion, to, to level Pharisee Christi- Christianity, and really to call the progressives back to holiness and purity. Man, because if you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you have conviction. You want to live in holiness because you got the fear of the Lord. And tragically, both of these extremes I talked about last week, both, both, many, many church, most churches on both sides of these extremes are totally devoid of the Holy Spirit. Geez, no wonder they go to those extremes, right? And so I want to talk about this and how, uh, just, I just want to show you what Paul says because it's powerful stuff. And I want to read this, you know, Paul wrote to, reading two chapters and, and covering that in a sermon, that's ambitious, right? That's a lot of scripture um, for one sermon, especially in America. But the Apostle Paul says um, to Timothy, he said, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. The scripture is the word of God. Scriptures are alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. They penetrate to the heart, dividing joints and marrow, even soul and spirit. They, they judge and weigh the motives of the heart. And so the scriptures are powerful. And, and so I just want to read through this. I'll explain a little bit as we go. And then uh, I'll unpack some of it and preach this message the Lord put on me this week. So Galatians 3, he dives right in. The Apostle Paul, of course, pulling no punches for this church. You foolish Galatians. <laughs> One commentator said, The best translation of that is, you idiots. (laughs) You stupid Christians. These Galatians were Christians. You stupid Christians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He's saying, we're only justified by the cross, and that's it. I would like to learn just one thing from you. This is bomb number one that he drops. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? We're going to come back and really talk about this a lot today. But in the first part of chapter three, Paul uses what I believe, and I'm going to explain this, is not salvation experience of the Holy Spirit, but the baptism and filling and the gifts of the Holy Spirit as evidence that they were believing the one true gospel. And man, if there's a message the American church needs to hear today, it is that right there. And so we're going to talk about that. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? He's talking about their experience in the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. If it really was in vain. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you? By the works of the law or by believing what you heard? And tragically, so many churches in our day He couldn't use the power and gifts of the Spirit as evidence that they believe the true gospel because so many churches have never experienced the filling power and gifts of the Holy Spirit because their church was born over here in religious legalism. And that's where they stayed. And so it's like Acts 19 when he rolls up in Ephesus and he's like, did you receive the Holy Spirit? How Read the Bible. How important was the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit to the early apostles? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Oh, mm, um, mm, we didn't even know there is a Holy Spirit. What's that? Oh, no. Then what gospel did you believe? 
Well, John, no wonder John talked about Jesus. And if you believed in Jesus, the connotation is you would know something about the Holy Spirit. So let me tell you about Jesus. Okay, cool. Get baptized. Cool. Now let me lay my hands on you and pray for you. Woo! And they get filled. But that's the state of so many churches today. They don't even know there is a Holy Spirit. Because they were born into a quenched faith. And so he says to them, verse 6, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. He's making the point because Pharisee Christians are trying to get the Gentiles who never knew the law to go back to the law. And he's saying, hey, listen, Abraham is the original father of faith, and he lived 430 years before the law was given. And he was God credited to righteousness by faith to Abraham. So, so the Gentiles don't need the law. They're skipping right to the fulfillment, Jesus. That's his whole point. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's out of Deuteronomy, I believe, or Leviticus. Verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because, quote, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Paul's quoting scripture, Old Testament scripture, and he's using scripture to prove that it's all about Jesus, and he's using the Old Testament scripture to prove we don't need the Old Testament law anymore. We need Jesus. So this is a good Bible sermon Paul's preaching. Verse 12, the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or a tree is another word you could translate that with. I I don't know how many times I've heard people who live sinful lifestyles, when you tell them about God, they're like, oh, I believe in God, but I I can't be saved. I'm too bad. I'm I'm too much of a sinner. What are they saying? I'm cursed. I'm cursed. And if that's you today, if you're watching online, I just want to tell you, you're not cursed. Jesus took the curse and the punishment for you, and you're not a good person. But Christianity is not about making good men better, but about making dead men alive. And so Jesus already paid the price for you. Nobody's getting to heaven because they're a good person. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I was saved while I was still living in sin, in in all kinds of sin. Drug use, drunkenness, sexual immorality. Jesus saved me. I didn't go to church. He saved me in my car. And so I don't know who this is for, but if you're watching online or you're listening in this room, do not believe the demonic lie that you're too bad for Jesus to save you. That's a lie. The only the only things too bad are the demons. Jesus died for bad people. The gospel is not about being a perfect person, being a good person. The the scriptures aren't about that. That's what the law implies, just because God is showing us right and wrong. 
But the whole Bible is a story about people who couldn't be perfect. So a perfect loving God came to pay the price for them so that he could still be with them in their imperfection. And then he puts his spirit in them, which actually empowers them to overcome the sin they once used to not be able to overcome on their own. And we'll get to that here in a minute. So understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God already read all this. Where are we at? Verse 11. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. Already read this, didn't I? Oh, here we go. Verse 14. This is a bomb. This is a bomb. This is one of the big ones that we need to talk about today. That the American church needs to hear. And I'm going to, we're going to unpack this today. He, Jesus, verse 14, redeemed us, went to the cross and paid for our redemption in order that, so that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. The blessing, Abraham was justified by faith alone, not by works. That's why Jesus died on the cross, so that all of us could be justified by faith, not by works. But there's a comma, so that. Look at your neighbor and say, so that. The gospel of salvation, the gospel of justification, being made right with God is unto something. It's a preparation for something greater. Salvation's just the beginning. Comma, he redeemed us. Comma, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to unpack that. But that's a big one. This is huge. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that's been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed, singular. Scripture does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but to you and your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. In other words, because people were so sinful to limit evil on the earth. It wasn't time for Jesus yet. People were getting real evil. God's like, I'm going to give the law to show you this is wrong. Don't kill people. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't cheat. To limit evil on the earth. It was added because of transgressions until the seed, Jesus, to whom the promise referred to has come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. He's talking about Moses and the Mosaic law. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would, not, would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until, Jesus, until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
He's saying the law is like, think of it this way. You, you parents, you have rules for your children, don't you? Because they're not smart enough, they're not mature enough to just do life on their own because they don't know anything yet. And so as they're being trained up, you have law, you have rules. And sometimes you, you don't explain it because they're, they're too young, they're too mature to understand, right? And so you, they get the classic, but why? Well, because I said so, all right? That's why. But then one day they grow up and they move out and they're what we would call free people. Now they're on their own. And that should strike the fear of God into you parents. There's coming a day where they're on their own and they're going to be able to make their own choices. So while they're locked up under your law, you better be training their butts up in the way they should go. And and give them wisdom and give them love and let it come from a loving place so that they trust it. So when they get out and they're free, they will stay in the freedom of God by walking with God. Because there's a counterfeit freedom, especially in America. Good night. There's a counterfeit freedom that says, oh, freedom is doing whatever you want. Be your own God. You make choices. You decide what you want to do. Counterfeit freedom. And we'll talk about it next week. That's not true freedom. But you're training your children up to be free people one day. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's training the world up to trust him and to know him by faith and to be free people. I read one theologian that said, the reason that God leaves us here after salvation and we go through many, we must go through many trials to enter the kingdom of God. Now, wait a second, Paul. I thought the day I get saved, I get Jesus in me and I'm going to heaven. So aren't I already in the kingdom? So why do I have to go through many trials to enter the kingdom? And one theologian I read said, do you know why God leads, leaves us here to go through many sufferings and trials? To train us to be free people in heaven and yet never sin. Oh, you think we're going to be robots in heaven? I hope not. And based on the scriptures I read, I don't think that's the case. And so perhaps God wants us to have some wisdom and maturity in this life and to learn wisdom and maturity so we can be with him forever in glory. Amen? I think that's a good theory. God's training us to be free people and yet not fall back into the false freedom, to truly make our own decisions, yet not fall back into the false freedom of our old sinfulness. And so he goes on and he says, before the coming of this faith, already read that, sorry, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Chapter four, what I am saying is this. That as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery until the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set time had fully come, this is Christmas, by the way. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Verse 6, because you are his sons, 
God sent the spirit of his son, who is the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus, Acts 16, 7 says, and here he says it again, God sent the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, When you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you do know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Now that you know God, or rather now that God knows you, now that you have a relationship with the one true living God, and that relationship keeps you in his presence, it keeps you out of trouble because you want to please him. Why would you go back to a law, a guardianship, rules ruling over you when you've got a relationship with the one true God? He says in verse 10, he says, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Verse 9. Verse 10, you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. He's talking about the Jewish festivals and seasons and Sabbath days. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. You're getting too religious, and that scares me, the Apostle Paul says. You're starting to feel like if you don't have church on a Saturday, you might not go to heaven. You're starting to act like if if you don't read the KJV, you might not go to heaven. You're starting to act like if you drink a little bit of alcohol but don't get drunk, you might not go to heaven. I fear for you. Then I'm wasting my efforts because that sounds like religion. That sounds like legalism. That sounds like traditionalism, Paul's saying. Verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? Paul started these churches. And the people that owed him their salvation were starting to give him the cold shot. They were starting to ghost him. Because these Pharisee religious teachers were saying, well, Paul's wrong and you really got to do this. And so it's like, oh, okay, let's avoid Paul now. And I think Paul's a little hurt personally as he's writing this letter. Not to mention he's very concerned about their salvation. And so he says, where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify if you would have done so, you'd have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? These people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. When you experience true freedom in Christ as spirit-filled Christians, there will be family and friends who, whom the Holy Spirit makes uncomfortable. And they'll be glad that you came to faith, but they'll warn you against the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And the reason is they want you to be zealous for the way they believe. And the reason for that is, Paul's going to mention this in 
couple other chapters later on. They don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. What's that mean? The cross of Christ means we're free. He says that in chapter 5 or 6. So the Pharisees come to faith in Jesus, but they don't want to give up the Mosaic law. Why? Because the Pharisees were in power and they would be persecuted if they said we don't need to do the law anymore. And, and I'm just going to tell you the spiritual reason, the true reason that so many Christians and denominations reject the Holy Spirit because they grew up or came to faith in a denomination or way of believing that didn't accept it. And they know that to believe it or to even be open to it or to even pursue it or to even go to another church or a conference who believes in it to see if it might be a thing, they're going to alienate themselves from their family and friends and their church family. And their own family and friends and church family will persecute them. That's why. And I felt that pressure. I know that because, you know, some of you are like, how's it? He's so prophetic. He knows everything. How does he read my heart? You know, sometimes it's because I've lived through it. I know. Because as the Lord was calling me and going, oh, I want you to do this. And I'm like, but my church family doesn't believe in that. But my pastor will have a talk with me. But my grandpa will tell me I'm going to hell if I do that Holy Spirit stuff. You think those thoughts, and then you go, you don't want to say that out loud because you know how bad that sounds? Oh, because of my fear of people? Not because of what the Bible says, because of what people are saying who depend on rules and traditions instead of Scripture? Then I'm not going to pursue more of you, Jesus, the one true Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. It's the Spirit of His Son, and He's a real person. The Holy Ghost, it's like a real ghost. It's like a real person. And we need to take this more literally. Our problem is we don't take the Bible literally enough. It's a literal, it's not a metaphor. The Holy Spirit's not a metaphor. He's a literal person. And that's the reason. They don't want to be persecuted. Well, that would be hard to go against the whole religious system that I grew up in. Yes, and that's what it is. A religious system. And let me tell you this, the only reason a whole denomination or a whole church or a whole religious system would have a problem with anything of the Holy Spirit is not because of what Scripture says, but because they've developed their whole denomination or way of thinking around things other than Jesus. Whether it's culture, whether it's tradition, whether it's rules, whether it's religion, it's not Scripture, I can tell you that. And so he says, have I become your enemy now by telling you the truth? (laughs) So I had an experience earlier this year where I get radically baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, it's all true. It's in there. It's in the book too. It's amazing. I just experienced it. Dreams and visions. Miracles, signs, and wonders. Let's go. And people have been part of our church for years. They're like, "Mm, I don't know about this. He's going too far. Mm." won't get into that got into that last week some of you are like I'm praying for you <laughs> I'm all right trust me verse 19 my dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you how I wish oh. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. (sighs) He's like, I don't want to have to speak so harshly. I don't have to rebuke you all the time. 
So why is he so passionate about it? Because it's not about, he's not trying to, he's not passionate to prove himself right. He's passionate going, these perverted gospels are a problem. And they can lead you away from the one true Jesus. And if you go too far down that road, you fall off the cliff and you don't go to heaven. Christ will be of no value to you. And that's why he's so passionate. That's why he's rebuking them so strongly. But he's like, I don't want to have to do this. I'm perplexed about you. I wish I could be with you and just change my tone. Verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman, Hagar was a slave, was born according to the flesh, not God's plan, their own flesh desiring what they wanted to do. But his son by the free woman, Sarah, was born as a result of divine promise. They were physically even unable. It was truly all God. And he's going to use this real story in history as a prophetic parable about our faith. He says, verse 24, these things are to be taken figuratively. The, the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now also, verse 28, brothers and sisters, you also, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. What does he mean by that? Religious, legalistic, Pharisee Christians have always persecuted the free people. So get used to it. Work through your emotions. Let go of your defensive anger. It is mine to judge, says the Lord. And then love them anyway. Bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. And learn to say, as Jesus said on the cross, as they were nailing him there, forgive them, Lord, they just don't know. And then do acts of kindness towards them. Bless them. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Sons of religion who claim Jesus have always persecuted the free people. What does scripture say, Paul says in relation to that? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Now, church, if we are children of the free woman, what kind of people does that make us? Free people. And we're going to talk about that next week. Because the next verse says, it is for freedom. Christ has set us free. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's, there's freedom. And so there's this connection between the true gospel and freedom and the Holy Spirit. There's a connection. That if you start to circumcise the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God from your faith, from your life, if you start to quench the spirit of God, if you start to grieve the spirit of God, and I think quenching the spirit of God does grieve the spirit of God. 
If you do those things, you'll find yourself being bound up in religion. You'll find yourself not free. If you quench the Holy Spirit, you'll find yourself not really thinking that your conscience is a big deal. And giving in to sin and immorality because the Holy Spirit convicts because he's a person. And just like if you have a good friend who's like, that, that's not right, dude. I love you. Don't do that. <laughs> How much more so with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Fellas, happy wife, happy life, right? She ain't happy. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Now, that's gospel truth. Did you know that? Solomon had over 700 wives. He should know. No. Do you know the scriptures that he wrote? You know, it's better to live on the corner of a roof by yourself than to share a house with a nagging wife. That's in the Bible. It's just a statement of fact. It's better to live in the desert he states it a different way, by yourself, than to share a house with a nagging wife. It's just true. And so some of you men, you know, you could go out in hunting season and bag the biggest buck. But if you're gone so much that your wife ain't happy, then when you get back, she ain't happy. She's not celebrating. You live there. Now you don't want to be there. She's half of you. Half of you doesn't like you. Now you've got cognitive dissonance. Life sucks. It's just true. Happy wife, happy life. You're one. You share life together. So when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit moves inside. You're one. Happy wife, happy life. How much more? If God ain't happy with the way you're living, you ain't going to be happy. Any Christians ever try to go back to the sin you used to enjoy? Used to love getting drunk. Used to love being promiscuous. It was fun. Because you didn't have the Holy Spirit and you didn't have conviction. Then you get the Holy Spirit and you have a bad day and you try to go back to it thinking it's going to help. And you feel terrible. You even got drunk, and you're like, I'm drunk, and I'm not enjoying it. This is terrible. Why? Because half of you inside of you, the Holy Spirit's going, I'm so grieved right now. Why? Oh, man. Because he's your source, and you're seeking things to fill you up from the outside. He's your source. Holy Spirit, God loves you. He wants a relationship. He doesn't want religion. So let's jump back. We'll talk more about that next week. Let's jump back to chapter 3. Let's look at these bombs Paul drops for the rest of our time. He says, verse 2, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard. I believe with all my heart and soul that Paul is not talking about receiving salvation. 
I believe with this phrase, he's referring to the baptism, filling, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, which was a different experience. Why do I say that? Because of the way the scriptural writers use that phrase in other places. Let me show you Acts chapter 8. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Oh, you're talking about salvation, the gospel? No. Verse 16, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. They've already been saved, but they hadn't, quote unquote, received the Holy Spirit. Then Peter and John, verse 17, placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, don't just take one scripture and make a theology out of it. We know that Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, when you believed, you get the Holy Spirit in you. Receive the Holy Spirit for salvation. But that is not the same thing as the baptism, filling, gifts, empowerment, all synonymous terms, the anointing, of the Holy Spirit. It's not the same thing. And here's what I'm pointing out. In Galatians 1, Paul is pointing to an experience, a very real experience that profoundly affected them. And he's going, remember that profound experience you had with the real Holy Spirit? Did you get that by law or by just believing Jesus died for you on the cross and we laid hands and prayed for you and boom, you, you get receive the Holy Spirit and boom, he's doing miracles. How did that stuff happen? just by believing the simple gospel. But the reason that we struggle understanding this in our culture is because most churches in America uh, have never had an experience, as I said earlier. Most Christians have never had an experience in America. And so, for example, Billy Graham once said something like this, and I'm going to paraphrase this quote by Billy Graham. But he basically said, when you accept Christ, you receive Christ by faith, you're saved, and you get the Holy Spirit in you. And he was saying that, and he's, he's like, it doesn't matter if you have a, an emotional experience, it doesn't matter if you have you know, dreams, visions, all that, if you have none of that. If you believe in Christ, you get baptized, you, you got the Holy Spirit in you, you're saved. And Billy Graham, I agree with him on that. He, he was saying that to comfort people who were receiving Christ, but there, there was no fireworks, Right? There was no filling. There was no, you know, experience. They weren't even emotional about it. And he's saying, no, we believe by faith we have the Holy Spirit in us. Now, I would agree with Billy Graham on that. But that's the stance most American churches take on the experience of the Holy Spirit. Well, we just believe by faith that we have it. That's great. For salvation, yes, we get it in us. But Paul Peter, the New Testament writers, they talk about the baptism and filling, which is a different thing. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you know it. Think about it this way. You go to Kings Island with your kids. Somebody get back. And let's say you actually enjoyed yourself. You didn't, like, hate it. Okay, let's say you really liked it. And somebody asks you, how did, how did it go? And you're like, oh, I was filled with joy. I was full, full of joy, filled to overflowing with joy. I was filled with joy at Kings Island. I mean, you know, actually emotionally I felt kind of chill and part of me was like, I'm not sure I'm enjoying this, but I'm receiving by faith that I was filled with joy at Kings Island. Is that how you talk? No, because if you're filled with joy, it overflows and you express it. You're like, 
The beast almost broke my neck after 20 years of not riding it. It's still the same. It's amazing. I almost died. They got this new ride. I almost died. I was filled with joy. We were all laughing so hard. I might have peed my pants. Because I was filled with joy. When you're filled to overflowing with something, you know it. And Paul is saying, did you receive the spirit by believe, by doing the works, or by just believing what you heard? If it was an experience that, well, we don't, we're not really sure that we did get it, but we're receiving by faith that we had it. If he was referring to that salvation, he wouldn't be using that as evidence to them that they believed the true gospel. He's referring to an experience that came with the preaching of the gospel. Jeez, that sounds like Jesus in Mark 16. And these signs will accompany or follow or go with those who believe. In my name, they'll drive out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up snakes with their hands, drink deadly poison. It won't hurt them at all. He's talking about miracles, signs, and wonders. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. Now, it's, did he say these signs will accompany the apostles who believe? Are those things just for the apostles? Or does it say it will accompany those who believe? Did he say, did he say the apostles will do greater things than these? Or did he say those who believe will do greater things than I have been doing? And listen, we can argue and debate whether he meant greater in measure or just greater in number. Greater in value or greater in number. We could debate that. What we can't debate is he said, those who believe will do greater things, not the apostles. And my point is it's for all of us for all time. And then he goes on. He says, have you experienced so much in vain? The King James renders that, have you suffered so much in vain? But the better translation is, have you experienced so much with the Holy Spirit in vain? Bible commentator and scholar David Guzik explains it this way. Have you suffered so much, so many things in vain? He uses the New King James. He said, perhaps a better translation of this phrase is, have you had such wonderful spiritual experiences all to no purpose? That may fit the context better. Paul wondered if all the gifts of the spirit they had received would amount to no lasting value because they tried to walk by law, but not by faith. And listen, some churches have awesome experiences with the Holy Spirit and God's pouring out and then what, you know what they do? They, they start quenching it and they go back to, no, 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 let's go back to the humdrum religion stuff. And, and Paul's like saying, don't do that. He's literally saying that to the Galatian churches because religion, religion traditionalism, Phariseeism, legalism, quenches the spirit and you will start seeing less miracle signs and wonders you probably start seeing less people get saved in general so on and so forth so he's like don't do it you'll quench the spirit have you experienced so much in vain there's churches we've had a great outpouring of the spirit in our church this year it's pretty phenomenal it's pretty phenomenal there's churches that experience that go and then they go no no, no we need to tone this down why you're scaring the new people. You're scaring the new people. They don't understand why you all jump around when you sing songs. They don't, they don't understand why sometimes people shake and fall over. They don't understand why 
uh, they don't understand the fact that demons are real. And so every now and then somebody screams bloody murder and falls over and shakes. That's weird. And I'm here to tell you, it is weird. (laughs) Scaring the new people. You mean people who don't know Jesus yet, right? You mean people who don't believe yet, right? You mean in our culture, atheists or agnostics, right? They just don't know. Or spiritual infants who just don't know because they haven't experienced. So we should dumb down our whole church experience to the lowest common denominator and quench the spirit because young, immature, or unbelieving people don't understand? Is that what the scriptures say? Hmm. And yet that's what a lot of churches do. Let's take the most extreme thing that could happen. Probably, probably one, of the, one of the most. I won't say the most. <laughs> let's say we're worshiping and somebody screams. Let's say they got a demon. They scream out, shake, fall over. They're just writhing on the ground screaming. This is, this is getting too weird for me. Somebody said one time, one of our revival services, if people fall on the ground, I'm out. People fell on the ground and they were out. That's weird. Yeah, it's weird for modern atheistic American people. Jesus drove out demons in public. In front of believers and unbelievers alike. And one place it says the demon shook them violently and came out. And another place it says the demon came out with a loud shriek. You ever been to the ER? You hear people screaming sometimes in there because, you know, they got a broken femur or their third cousin was fishing and didn't pay attention and slung the hook right into their eye. But you went to the ER to get a Starbucks coffee. So you're like, this is offending me. That I'm not very comfortable here. There's people screaming. I don't like it. It's a hospital. This is a hospital. There are some churches that go, if people got demons, oh, we're afraid of that. Oh, you need, don't come here. You need to go get some help. You're the hospital. <laughs> if people got demons and they want help, not trouble, but if they want help, bring them in. I hope they shake and scream and fall over. Because, listen, if a demon is screaming and shaking someone, it ain't happy. And it's probably on its way out. So Jesus didn't mind the screams and the shaking and the falling. And I'll be honest, I don't either. And sometimes when I hear it on services, I look up and I'm like, who is that? What's going on? You know why? Because it's the sound of freedom. I'm like, ooh, somebody getting free. Go pray for him. Yeah, go pray for him. Yeah, get him. Get him. freedom not believing in the ministry and gifts of the holy spirit is believing a partial gospel and i would say it is a perverted gospel verse 14 of chapter 3 jesus redeemed us in order that the blessing given to abraham which is salvation justification by faith and faith alone might come to the gentiles through jesus so that unto something By faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Geez, that sounds like 
Acts chapter 238, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive and, and, and. He didn't stop and say, and you'll get to go to heaven. And you'll receive something greater, not just heaven one day, but the Holy Spirit of most high God inside of you. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far, all, all who are far off. The Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are part of the gospel. They're part of the good news. And I want to close with this. Um, I had a criticism recently. Someone emailed me, and they were offended that we are teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and that, that I taught on and demonstrated one in particular, speaking in tongues. And uh, <laughs> that one really gets the religious people. Uh, I really hate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny, really. <laughs> oh, I'm trying not to revert to my 12-year-old youngest child uh, right now and, like, push buttons on purpose to, to bother people. And I wasn't doing that at the time. I was just doing what the Lord wanted. But um, I got this email, and they were upset about that. And they said to me, why is the gospel not enough for you? And they went on to explain, and I'm paraphrasing, you need these experiences. You're teaching people to need experience. You're teaching people to value experience over scripture. You're doing this. You're Why is the gospel not enough for you? And I thought to myself, that is a good question. Because the gospel in its simplest, most purest form is the cross of Christ. We're sinners. If we believe in him, we get forgiven and we go to heaven. That's the simplest form of the gospel. And I've thought a lot about that question. And my answer would be, the gospel is enough for me. And if Jesus, all he ever did for me was die on a cross and say he rose from the dead, did not pour out his spirit, and just went right back to heaven and said, well, guys, the rest of this life, do your best, try hard, good luck, because you'll need it. And I'll leave you the book so you can read about me and the stuff I did with people who actually got to experience me. But if that was it, if that's all I got was the truth, that if I believe I'll go to heaven one day, I'm going to be honest with you. That would be enough for me. If all I got was the hope that one day I will and the promise that one day I will... And I just put my head down and went through the rest of my life. And I couldn't even pray and expect God to meet a financial need. I couldn't pray and see him heal me or a loved one. I, someone severely oppressed by the devil would be like, sorry, suffer, suffer. we got to go through many trials to get to the kingdom. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'll cry with you. I can't pray for you because God doesn't listen anymore. You know, let's just say that's how it was. I'm going to be honest with you. That would be enough for me. I would still suffer through. Because one day, one day, one day. And this life's short. It's nothing. It's vapor. I get it. We'll suffer for him. He suffered for us. That's fine. It's enough for me. But what I've realized, theologically speaking, from the Bible, is that while it would be enough for me, it just wasn't enough for him. Because the whole goal for him was to be with us. 
And I think him pouring out the spirit was his way of being like a dad who bought the best Christmas gift ever. (laughs) Heaven, we get to be together one day forever. Nothing will come between. And he wrapped it up. And then he went, you know what? I can't wait that long. So I'm going to give you a deposit. It's a down payment. It's going to guarantee that one day you will, but it's actually all of me. You get all of me now. The moment you believe. So salvation, forgiveness, it's the one day. That's enough for me. It just wasn't enough for him because he's too good. And so if we believe in the thing that's good enough, the, the cross, he goes, you're getting something better. You're getting something more than just justification and forgiveness and salvation one day to go to heaven. You are getting something more. The gospel declares there's more than that. The Holy Spirit says, move over, I'm coming in. I'm living with you. And every trial you go through, I'll be right there with you. And you have access to the throne room and you can pray and you can see me meet physical needs, health needs, financial needs. You have power and authority to overcome all the power of the enemy. Move over, I'm coming in. The same power and authority the apostles had. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead that the apostles had. Move over, I'm coming in. We're doing this together. You're not alone. And when God comes in, he said, that's not all. You're getting some gifts too. Some of you are going to have dreams and visions. Some of you are going to prophesy. Some of you are going to have gifts of healing, like an anointing. You're just kind of wired in the spirit for healing. It's not me. It's scripture. It's a spiritual gift. Workers of miracles. Wow. You're getting some gifts. So it's enough for me. The gospel, the cross, justification, heaven, that's enough for me. It just wasn't enough for him. And if he moves in and wants to give me gifts... How disrespectful and dishonoring would it be for me to go, meh, that's weird. No thanks. And out of my gratitude for the cross, I go, bring it on. (laughs) It would be like the prodigal coming home and the father says, kill the calf, get the robe. Here's the ring. And the prodigal goes, oh, no, I'm unworthy. Throw the robe in the dirt. I'm not even deserved to be called your son. Take the ring back. No, I, do, I will not let you give me that. That's what it's like. He died to give it to me. One of my friends told me right before this service, he heard the last sermon. And he said, I heard somebody say it this way. For the unbeliever, salvation is the greatest gift. But for the believer, the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift. Because you've already got salvation. It's good enough for me. Just wasn't good enough for him. And he wants us to use his Holy Spirit, to use the gifts he's given us, to partner with the Holy Spirit, to invite the Holy Spirit in, to do what he wants to do. And my goodness, that's God's strategy for church growth and evangelism to get in an upper room and pray. And then Holy Spirit goes, this is what I want you to do. And then you do what Holy Spirit says in the book of Acts. They did that. And boom, miracle signs and wonders, whole communities, whole cities come to faith in Jesus. 
But when we circumcise the spirit, it's offensive to God. And we go, thanks, we can figure the rest out on our own. And we try the rest in our human wisdom. And honestly, we fail miserably. And then we think it's just part of suffering for God that we're not very fruitful and that more people go to hell. And Jesus said, abide in me and I'll abide in you and you'll bear much fruit. And yes, that's character fruit, but it is also salvation fruit, evangelistic fruit. And that happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit's leading the show, let me tell you, it's a show. He shows up and he shows off when you let him, when you don't quench him. And so that's the journey we're on. We're children of the free woman. So we're free people. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We'll talk about that more next week. Let's pray right now. <sighs> Jesus. I just want to invite our holy, our, uh, our, uh, they are holy, but our ministry team, <laughs> they are set apart. They're holy. Come on up and prepare to pray for some people. (sighs) Right now in the name of Jesus, I just want to break off any spirit of performance, religion, or perfectionism off of the Lord's people. And sometimes God shows us an act of obedience. And it is something he wants us to do. But then we can turn that into, if I didn't do it good enough, if I, if I failed at that, if I didn't do it how, exactly how he said, then we beat ourselves up and we start to doubt his love for us and our connection with him. And I just renounce all that in Jesus' name. And I pray that off of you in Jesus' name. And... I, Right now, Jesus, we're thankful for your grace, and I pray that you would, by your grace, meet the needs of your people. Those who failed, those who you have called to obedience, and maybe they haven't been doing it, and so they're experiencing shame, insecurity. Jesus, just administer grace yet again. Draw them near. Restore them. Get them back up on their feet. And when you're ready, God says, you can try again, but don't ever doubt my love for you. So we thank you for your love today, God. I just pray for those right now who've never received you as Lord, who've never said that they believe in you, Jesus, who've never been baptized in water. I pray veils to come off of their heart and mind right now. And I want to speak to you that apart from Christ, you do stand condemned already because of your sin. It separates you from God. That is the reality. That is true. It's what the scriptures teach. But God so loved the world and he so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And so if you will humble yourself and receive Christ by faith, Romans 10 says, by believing in your heart and then confessing with your mouth, Jesus is my Lord, you will be saved. For everyone who calls upon his name will be saved. And if that's you, I want to invite you to do that. Just say this prayer with me right now. Say, dear Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Make me brand new. Help me live for you the rest of my life and give me the gift of your Holy Spirit. If, that, if you prayed that prayer, I want to invite you to come up and just tell our, tell our prayer team. and just, They just want to pray to bless you. 
for God to help you, for the Holy Spirit to bless you and to help you. So as we're leaving, come up and take advantage of that. And lastly, there's some of you here today, perhaps you've never had an experience where you felt like you were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is something God longs to give his people. He stands ready and waiting. And I want to ask the Lord to gift you with that today. I want to invite you, if that's you, if that stirs your heart, to come up and to ask the Lord to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Let our team pray over you. And some of you, he's going to fill you today. Others of you, he's inviting you on a journey to ask, seek, and knock, to seek him for this experience. This was Jesus promised his disciples it would happen, and that promise was an invitation to seek him for it. And they met for 10 days and prayed and seeking God's face. So he's calling some of you on a journey to experience more of him. And if that's you, we would love to just pray over you today. Others of you, if you need physical healing in your body, we would love to pray over you. Or if, uh, if you need freedom from oppression, um, especially anxiety, depression, those types of things, spiritual heaviness, suicidal thoughts, ideations, Come, let us pray for you. We would love to pray for you. And God, Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come right now and just fill your people. Holy Spirit, come right now and fill your people. Maybe you just need, you just need to spend some time with God. You're welcome to stay, hang out, and make your seat an altar or come up front, kneel down and pray. And we'll just leave this place in an attitude of prayer worship. So we say all these things, and we thank you for all these things, Jesus, that you're doing in this place in your mighty name. Thank you for the full gospel. Thank you for salvation, and thank you for the baptism and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for your presence, Holy Spirit. Go with us today and this week. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.